Yo, what's up? This is Freddie Adu. I want to give a shout out to Adam and Zach from Denver. Uh, they host a uh, EPO podcast called The False Nines. Check them out and, uh, you know, show them some love, man. Peace out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The False Nines. This is the 47th episode of a bi-weekly footballing discussion. I am your host, Zach Pensack, alongside my friend, Adam Goffin. Adam, how are you doing today? Footy, Zach. Mathematically safe footy. <laughs> Newcastle has solidified its place in the Premier League for next year's season. Maybe the smallest of our concerns right now as Toon supporters, but still a nice thing to see uh, this coming on the back of a 2-2 draw against West Ham on the weekend. Uh, certainly not coming on the back of our game today against Manchester City that we'll talk about in a moment. But yeah, Newcastle safe for another year. Happy to be in the Premier League for another season. Now let's hope we can get the takeover over the line, my friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the takeover will actually be a large focus of our uh, chat today. Maybe not as much the chat between Adam and myself, but uh, instead we have a special guest on the pod today. I had a uh, lovely conversation with an expert uh, in criminal and corporate law uh, earlier in the day, so we'll get to that a bit later. She'll be providing us with some in-depth analysis on the goings-on of the takeover. So good to have another voice on the pod um, and somebody other than Adam and I just ringing in each other's ear about how we wish the takeover was over at this point. <laughs> true that, true that. It's nice to kind of glam it up a little bit as well and get these fancy guests on versus you and I commoners down here. So I like it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we're using the uh, the power vested in us by SB Nation to to widen our reach to to more glamorous celebrities uh, than than just two two men sitting in their respective basements for recording a podcast. So um, <laughs> yeah, as we talked about, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on Newcastle's safety uh, as well as the takeover. And then we'll also just jump into a few of the top storylines that have emerged since our last pod, go over the, the Premier League table as it stands, and focus quite heavily on relegation. I think that that is probably the most interesting thing going on right now. So uh, without any further ado, let's get into it, Adam. Uh, Newcastle United since the COVID uh, interlude has only lost one of four, or excuse me, one of five games in the Premier League. Uh, I think uh, all Newcastle fans would say, you know, much more impressive performances across the board uh, against any team not named Manchester City than we would have expected. Yeah, I think that's a fair, fair analysis there. And, you know, Manchester City, anytime you pick up points against them, is absolutely a bonus. Uh, Good, good form, I would say, you know, seeing seeing that change in formation that Bruce has kind of implemented since he's come back. I think we're playing more attacking football. I remember prior to COVID, we were talking about how our attack was just miserable, couldn't see where the goals were coming from. We had these conversations about how the top scorer, and this is my claim, top scorer would score more goals than Newcastle. But since they've come back, they've been banging these goals in for fun. It's been do you think we owe a lot of the credit there to Steve Bruce, or do you think it's the quality of player that he has at his disposal this season? I, I certainly think it's a little bit of both. I, I would be remiss if I um, did not give any credit to Steve Bruce. I think that 
Um, it took a while, but I think he realized back in March how we talked about that that conversion to a back four rather than the back five that we had played earlier in the season um, has really opened up a lot of attack, provided more support for Joe Linton up top. And um, I think most importantly, above everything else, uh, putting Miggy Almiron in the number 10 role, which was know the the role that really made him prominent at Atlanta United and and got him on the attention of a lot of Premier League clubs a couple of years ago and he's thrived in that role so um, I think credit all around I think players are playing up to a bit higher level and Bruce definitely deserves uh, a little bit of a pat on the back for for understanding that um, you know maybe he was uh, kind of needing to swallow his pride and, and try to change things up a bit yeah I think getting us to that mathematical safety was aside from the FA Cup run, which I think we all know is going to be a stretch with the quality of teams left in it, the only main goal was really to get us in the Premier League for another season, and he's done it. Credit credit to Bruce. He even got himself a Manager of the Month nomination in there. Zach, do you see that? I did, yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, it, it, it's it been really impressive since the restart. Uh, obviously, uh, four of those, or excuse me, Three of those five matches that Newcastle's played in the league against uh, sides lower than them in the table. So uh, Villa, Bournemouth, and West Ham. And of those three matches, we picked up five points, two draws against Villa and West Ham, and that uh, emphatic 4-1 win against Bournemouth. Uh, and then the Sheffield United match, obviously the most surprise result of that list. And uh, today's 5-0 drubbing against City. Yeah, we'll, we'll 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 take the match against City and we'll we'll put it to the side. But I think overall, it it has been a really exciting restart for Newcastle and definitely some some you know positives to take out of that uh, on a larger scale. Um, speaking of that, are there any particular players that have you know impressed you uh, specifically since the restart? Yeah, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the form of Alan Saint Maximin. Um, he got himself a Player of the Month nomination for for June as well. So. He's, he's been fantastic since he's come back. And I think the one thing that's really impressed me about St. Maximin since he's returned um, from, from the COVID break is just it seems as though he's a less selfish player than he than he was when we, we kind of went on the break. He's come back and he seems to have much better decision making in the final third. He's looking not always for the shot himself. He's looking for that killer pass. And, you know, he's put a couple goals on plates for people. Great opening goal for um, Dwight Gale against Bournemouth. He set up a, an additional two goals in that game as well. And I've just been really impressed with how he terrorizes defenses and also how now his end product seems to be improving as well. Certainly. I think that before the uh, the break and subsequent restart, there were a lot of comparisons being drawn to Hadem Ben Arfa, another Frenchman a few years back who had those kind of dizzying and dazzling and dribbling skills that uh, St. Maximin has um, established, but uh, that that comparison did come with a bit of a drawback, which is that you know Hadem Ben Arfa, for all his skills, was known to be uh, you know a bit I, I don't want to say selfish, but uh, a bit reluctant to pass the ball even when um, it seemed like there were other men more open in opportune positions. Uh, and since since the restart, as you said, St. Maximin completely turning face there. He has one goal, but those three assists against Bournemouth, and the second one in particular to uh, Sean Longstaff, that dribbling and that kind of hesitation and change of speed and movement before putting it on a plate for Longstaff to smash it home, that was that was the pick of the bunch. And I think that those comparisons to Ben Arfa are kind of dying quite quickly as you see the, the maturity that... Uh, St. Maximin is showing at, at just 23 years of age. 
Yeah, I think there's going to be we're going to have a hard time holding on to him if the takeover doesn't go through. There's been rumors in the press this week of PSG and Liverpool both being interested in St. Maximin and potentially launching a bid in the summer. So we'll see how that goes. But I want to flip over to the other side, somebody who I think has underperformed a little bit. Um, and he's somebody who I think we we all consider one of the first names on the team sheet is Martin Dubravka. I feel like Dubravka is always good for an error. I think that he's got a couple of those in him a season. I think he's actually been a little bit more error-prone since the restart than he has previously. The goal against Villa, I attribute that entirely to Dubrovka, should have saved it. I don't know if you saw the goals or the game today against Manchester City, but his placement for David Silva's free kick was pretty terrible. Um, I feel like he's had some howlers since we've come back and probably a little bit more than we're accustomed to seeing from him. So is this maybe... As, as a result of the injury that he's he's come back from recently? Do we think there's any longer-term concerns there? I, I certainly think that's a, a fair shout, and I think the criticism on, on the Villa goal is is right. I think he may have been a little bit shaded by Shelby, but agree with you, he should have done better. Uh, even the one goal against Bournemouth, although it didn't matter, um, seemed as though he, he might have been able to come off his line and punch away that a free kick before it, you know, became the danger it was. Uh, I think a nagging injury could certainly you know, be part of that. Um, I think that you're right. He hasn't performed really up to that level that he had had been performing this season. But I, I think that a couple blips in the radar at the end of the season, um, probably the best timing for that in a way. Now that we are, as you've mentioned, <laughs> you know, we we are mathematically safe. So I think that um, Dubravka, a couple blips, but I I think I've been I've been continuously impressed by the way in which he is able to uh, to come out he's able to communicate and I think his distribution has gotten a bit better as well so I'll give him a little bit of credit there yeah that's fair I think you know let's let's give him the benefit of the doubt he's probably the most solid goalkeeper we've had since Shea Given um, but it's 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 fair to lay criticism at the door um, if we see form downturning if you will Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that goalkeepers, it, really in any sport, but obviously this is a footballing podcast, goalkeepers in football can can certainly turn from here to zero quite quickly. And obviously, Dubravka is not there yet, but um, you know, you you have to keep up that performance if you want to be considered one of the best keepers in the Premier League. Uh, good transition here uh, to uh, another um, another storyline that that has emerged since the last pod. If we're talking about best in the Premier League. Liverpool finally sealing the title. Uh, it was sealed when Chelsea played spoiler once again, beating Manchester City uh, about two weeks ago, um, uh, partially on the boots of Christian Pulisic, uh, the American legend coming in incredible form right now. But anyway, on to Merseyside. Uh, Liverpool's 30-year wait is over. Uh, I got to say with you, uh, say to you, Adam, I, I was getting very, very tired of the whole 30 years of pain is over trope that was being put around as if Liverpool haven't won numerous cups, including the Champions League, since their last Premier League title. Yeah, though, I mean, it's not it's not like their fans have had nothing to celebrate in the last 30 years. I think you're absolutely right there. But this was the big one for them, right? Um, they'd never won a Premier League title. Um, they'd seen Manchester United eclipse them in terms of their um, top division titles in England, and they were well ahead at one point. So I think now getting finally back in the game, getting that monkey off their back, we're going to be seeing a lot more of Liverpool here in the next five to ten years. 
Certainly, yeah. I think Liverpool, City, and maybe Chelsea or Man United kind of establishing themselves as the the three front runners early on for for next year's title, especially Chelsea mentioning them with the the acquisitions they have made in the last couple weeks. Uh, um, But yeah, I think Liverpool, obviously, they, they were the champions elect for a while sealing that title it was it was it was kind of nice to see the videos of those celebrations they were having as teams reminiscent of uh, the Leicester a title that they won also at the hands of Chelsea while they were off the field uh, five years ago or excuse me four seasons ago um, but a question that you brought up with me before we uh, recorded the pod today was do you feel like Liverpool is taking their foot off the gas a little uh, and the biggest example of that being the uh, dismantling that Manchester City gave them after the Guard of Honor in their match last week at the Etihad. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, and they had a little bit of a scare against Brighton earlier on today as well. Ended up ended up running up 3-1 winners in that game. But took a 2-0 lead, got clawed back. Um, Neil Mopé scoring a goal for Brighton. And it looked like, you know, maybe we're going to see a little bit more um, of the same from, from Liverpool but the, I don't think any Liverpool team going out there would want to lose 4-0 to Manchester City regardless of the situation. And I think the stories about like they were still celebrating their accomplishments and some of them were hungover, I think it's a massive cop-out. I think they didn't perform on the day. I think City have been probably one of the best teams in the league since they've come back with a couple of blips, obviously, with the Chelsea game and this past weekend against Southampton. But in, in general, I think what really struck me the most was... Jurgen Klopp's reaction to that game. There were some, there was some criticism thrown at him by the press of how they really didn't show up for that that game, and he basically deflected it and said, "No, my players have worked really tirelessly hard all season, and they deserve to celebrate. And it's fine if they have one off game. We still are a world class team and are going to break all records in, in the league." I felt like it was a little bit of a cop out from Jurgen Klopp. I would he's he he's all season seemed to me like a manager that has wanted to just be elite, wanted to achieve everything that he possibly could with Liverpool, and to really kind of make a, a lame excuse like that actually made me lose a little bit of respect for for Jurgen Klopp. I think that's fair. I I think that's a fair point. Um, yeah, it's kind of what we've talked about before. Is it are it, how, how do you want to manage the club, especially now that the title is in your hands? Um, and kind of transitioning on to City, and as you said, they've been performing so well, does, which is odd to, saying that they've, you know, considering that they've dropped two games since the restart, but uh, it's clear that Pep Guardiola has them in a winning mindset right now. The, the league is certainly done, but Man City uh, still in the FA Cup and the Champions League, maybe more importantly, and Pep Guardiola has them playing ruthless ruthless football today something that we saw on display earlier uh, uh just a few hours ago against newcastle this kind of you know relentless uh pressure and desire to score as many goals as possible so although liverpool has that title i, I think that man city uh, as you kind of mentioned are the team that is is maybe playing a bit more impressive football right this moment yeah i, I would say so i mean the, clearly the title race was over before COVID even happened right so I don't think necessarily we had these grandiose expectations that Man City were going to claw it back once we had the restart happen. But they've played, to your point, they've been playing really, really well. And for the vast majority of it, without their top-scoring striker and Sergio Aguero. So I've been impressed at how there's been other people come in. Jesus hasn't been scoring many goals. He got one today. So they've really been relying on a lot of other players. Mares has stepped up. 
Phil Foden, I think, has been one of the top three, top five, if not top three players since the restart. Um, and they're just they're just playing good football now. So I think this bodes well for English hopes in the Champions League come August. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. I, I do want to give a shout out, though, to uh, one player in particular in that that shock defeat that they had at Southampton on the weekend. Uh, the Che Adams goal, if, if you haven't seen it, um, uh, listeners, uh, uh, certainly check it out. Um, it was essentially Ederson coming out of his box as per usual. Uh, a simple pass to uh, Zinchenko, who for one reason or another tried to dribble around uh, a uh, Southampton uh, midfielder who is pressing high. Um, ball came loose, and Che Adams, who have n- who has not scored a goal this season, um, just without any second thought, hitting the ball from about 40 yards out and looping it over Ederson. One of those goals, Adam, where the first time you watch it, you think, okay, that's totally on the keeper. Um, but then the more you watch it, at least for me, the more impressed I was by the actual goal itself. Yeah, I don't... I don't think you can blame, and I've been a critic of Ederson in the past, as you know, I don't think you can lay a lot of blame at his door for this one. I do think it was a mistake on the outfield city player, Zinchenko, and then obviously just a moment of class from from Che Adams. Not not something that I think we've ever said on the pod before, that line, a moment of class from Che Adams. Um, But there Mm. you go. Maybe we give him Adams' stamp of approval of the week there. Oh, I love that. I, I, the stats for that game were just remarkable because Chatham scored that goal in the 15th minute. So City was down early and was going to dial up that pressure to, to an 11 or 12. Uh, if you look at the stat line, City had 26 shots to Southha- Southampton's eight. City had three times as much possession, about 75 to 25 there. City had 13 corners to Southampton's two corners. They had double the amount of touches, they had tripled the amount of passes, and they lost 1-0. So that is the definition of a smash and grab right there. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you, when, you look, when you think about that, it was just backs to the wall, park the bus stuff, right? And fair play to them. They took the lead. I think when I think about smash and grab, I think about a late winner, right? How they've t- kept it tight the whole game. This one, sure. credit, credit to Southampton. They took the lead early, and they clung on to that. They, they didn't let the most free-scoring, highest-scoring team in the Premier League score on them. And this is a team sack that conceded nine earlier on in the season at home against Leicester. So they're not really known for their defensive prowess, I would say, Southampton. So even more impressive for that reason. Certainly, yeah. I think uh, either Che Adams or Hassan Hudel gets the stamp of approval from me uh, for this week in in that performance. Uh, So one interesting thing with City is uh, they obviously are are not going to win the title, um, but they all but have at least a Champions League place uh, solidified. I I specify place because we don't know what will happen with their incoming trial, as at the moment Manchester City will be banned from the Champions League. Um, But in in terms of doing what you can do at the moment to to qualify for the Champions League next season, they're they're almost there. Do you think that they should be resting players for the uh, last few games of the league season? Um, I think Pep's been doing a decent job rotating the squad, and I think that Probably doing what he's doing there is a, is a good recipe for success. I think about this a lot with American football as well. When teams are have already qualified for the playoffs but have one or two regular season games to go, it's always that conundrum of do you want to keep your players match fit, keep them healthy, out on the field, performing, if they're in good form, risk you know kind of losing the benefit of that, that good form and it tailing off a little bit. 
but then you risk the in, the injuries as well by by playing them. So you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place there. In my eyes, I think with a squad that good and with a, a side as you know as impressive as City are, keep keep rotating Pep is probably the right right answer there. I think that's a I, I I pretty much agree with that. I think that especially because they are ten points up on fourth place with uh, th- uh, four matches to or yes four matches to go, so twelve points remaining. Um, they they only need one victory to solidify a place in the top four, and Arsenal is the only team in the top half that Manchester City still has to play. All all the rest of their matches are against uh, lower. Uh, table side so I think they can certainly rest players and, and take players entirely out of lineup uh, or rotate I think it, it really is um, kind of at Pep's whim what tactic he wants to take here yeah it's interesting w- one thing I would add is that City as impressive as they've been since the restart to remind you they have lost nine games this season that's more than Manchester United that's more than Wolves that's more than Arsenal and obviously more than Liverpool as well so, like, to, to see them as far ahead in second place as they are uh, with having lost nine games, I think is it just shows you how head and shoulders above the rest of the Premier League Liverpool is and just how tight it potentially could be next season with the quality of teams kind of pushing on from in, uh, um, third to sixth, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a matter of when Manchester City doesn't lose, they don't just win, they crush teams. And I think that the goal differential has been big, um, and especially for getting their confidence higher and higher. Uh, they they always they always are playing on the assumption that they're going to score two or three goals. Obviously, on the weekend against Southampton, that wasn't the case, but I think that that does numbers for uh, you know being able to to keep up that high level of play. Now. We, we have praised City since the restart quite a bit, but uh, Adam, I, I think you could almost argue that the team on the other side of Manchester, United of all squads, have potentially been the most impressive team since the restart. What do you think there? Yeah, I think it, it'd be hard to make an argument against that, to be honest, Zach. I think Manchester United have just looked absolutely unstoppable. Um, not the most defensively solid team, but scoring goals for, front, for fun. And I think the front four of playing Martial up top in that lone striker role, sitting Bruno Fernandes in right behind him, and then having Rashford on the left and then Greenwood on the right is just an unbelievable front four. I don't think there's a better forward line in the Premier League right now. Yeah, yeah. all of those players uh, you know, playing at, at such a high level. You have Anthony Martial, who got his first uh, hat-trick in his career since the restart. Uh, Mason Greenwood uh, with four goals himself in uh, just a matter of minutes, uh, it almost seems like, uh, with him not playing entire matches. Bruno Fernandes has been a revelation since coming in January. I think it's of the nine matches he's played since being bought from Manche- by Manchester United, there are only two matches uh, where he has not registered a goal or an assist. So the clip that he's performing at is pretty remarkable. And then Marcus Rashford as well cannot be forgotten. Um, yeah, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, really this embarrassment of riches and able to play what you you have properly noted is essentially a front four with all those players bombing forward and, and lapping over each other. It's a very, very impressive uh, line that he has up there and also a lot of youth there, which is very positive going forward. Yeah, I was actually just looking and doing a little bit of research on that front four earlier on today. So you've got um, Greenwood, who's 19 years old. You've got Rashford, who is 22 years old. 
Martial 24 and Fernandez 25. That is scary, Zach. The oldest mm-hmm. person in that front four is Bruno Fernandez, and he's not even in his late 20s yet. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, a lot to build on there. And that that's where it comes down to the manager largely. Can you continuously and constantly and consistently, to, to be alliterative there, uh, get the best out of all of those players? You know, obviously there will be highs, there will be lows, there will be dips in form for all four of them. But if you can have at least two and if not three of them kind of cooking at the same time, it's going to be a powerhouse going forward. And you know, it becomes a question of can Men United solidify that defense a bit better? They've had question marks around Harry Maguire's performances as well as, uh, you know, the, the fullbacks have, have always been kind of inconsistent for Man United over the last five or six years. But I think that there's a lot to work on with that club. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the other thing I would add is I love the bounce up front that, that Man United have of academy players in greenwood and rashford and then big money signings in fernandez and martial that they've martial's been there a long time but he was i think at the time the most expensive teenage signing in the world when he signed for manchester united i believe that was a stat Mm. that i read before so um, amazing to think of how well they've groomed those players and they back in january they missed out on holland erling holland um they wanted him there and i think one of those sticking points was something to do with his um, with his agent wanting ridiculous fees on top of the, the signing itself. And, you know, Solskjaer credit to him, to pivot over to him, he stuck to his guns, didn't want to pay those those fees, and he said, you know, I have a good player in Greenwood who I want to give a chance, and he's moved forward with him. And credit to Manchester United, I, I think, you know, the I, I would go as far here. I'm offering a lot of superlatives. I'll offer one more. I think this is the best Manchester United side in terms of form and in terms of quality with Pogba coming back in that we have seen since the Alex Ferguson days. All right. I like it. I like that bold claim. I'm not going to disagree with you necessarily. And um, as, as we've kind of said here, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's job doesn't really seem to be in any danger anymore. So got to give credit where, where yep. credit's due there. And 16 uh, games yeah, undefeated, man. Zach. 16 games in all competitions undefeated for United. That's impressive. And right now sitting atop the the league form table since COVID. So Adam pulled some numbers here. Uh, We're going to disclude today and yesterday's matches just so we can look at the first five for every club. Um, And Manchester United uh, was, uh, uh, along with Newcastle United of all teams, the only two clubs that had been unbeaten going into the midweek fixtures. Obviously, Newcastle has lost and Manchester United has not played their sixth match yet. But man, you looking really, really positive at the moment. Yep, really, really positive indeed. Form team in the table, and looking at that table, interesting to see Manchester City down there in 14th in that in that table over the last five games, not not including today's game. Table doesn't lie though, Zach. Aston Villa, Bournemouth, Norwich, still rooted to the bottom three there. Yeah, that's <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know. And then Watford and West Ham, both you know the the two clubs right above. So the the bottom five as it was. A uh, um, couple of clubs though, I do want to point out on on that league form table that have been impressive. I think Brighton deserves a shout out. They've been very energized and like you said, almost necking a point off Liverpool in their match today. I think Southampton uh, at seventh in that league form table after five match- matches. 
they've looked fantastic. That win over Manchester City, uh, you know, they've really fought tooth and nail in all their matches so far. So I would give shout out to those two more mid-level sides in, in Brighton and Southampton. Yep, we did the double over Southampton this season as well. So Zach, don't forget that. That is true. Yes, so that's why Newcastle was at fourth in the form table before, again, um, giving up five goals and scoring none to get today against City. <laughs> but still, still, I think I think updated with today's matches, Newcastle still in the in the top six. So uh, you know it has been a really impressive performance since the restart. Uh, so credit where credit is due. Now. In specific, though, Adam, I, I know that you wanted to talk about the race for, I guess, what we would call third through six, which is an odd way of putting it. But I think that this is an odd year, especially with those uh, with the in the pending ban for Manchester City. So why don't you run us through what it's looking like for for that kind of, uh, you know, potential Champions League and Europa League race? Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. So um, I'll, I'll kind of run through, obviously, Liverpool, Man City in the first two places. Let's assume that they hold on to first and second, respectively. But anything really from third through tenth down is up for grabs at this point. So we'll start with Chelsea in third. They've played 34 games. They're on 60 points, so four games to go, 60 points. Leicester have played the same amount of games, 34 games on 59 points. Manchester United are coming up hot on them. They have a game in hand on 33 games, 55. So if United win that game in hand, they will be on 58. So 60, 59, 58. And then I think there's really a marked kind of grouping almost down from 6th to 10th. So you've got 3rd through 5th, Chelsea, Leicester, Man U. And then you've got Wolves, Sheffield United, and Arsenal. So Wolves are have played 34 games. They're on 52 points. Sheffield United, 34 games on 51. Arsenal, 34 on 50. Burnley, 34. Probably the surprise of the bunch in there, right? But, um, since the mm-hmm. restart, at least, on 49. And then Spurs, um, 33 games. So a game in hand, they're on 48. They would leapfrog. Sheffield United into seventh if they won that game in hand. So I'd ask you this, Zach, what what are you anticipating from the final four games of the season here? How do you think the top four pans out? And who do you think will claim those last European spots? Mm. So I, I think the, the top three, as we see right now, Liverpool, City, Chelsea, it, it will probably end at that. I think that Chelsea is playing um, you know, really impressive football despite that loss that they had uh, against West Ham uh, on the weekend. Um, it, you're right, though. From there, it gets interesting. Leicester is kind of, you know, holding. They're just dangling by a thread at the moment. They got a, a valuable 1-1 draw against uh, Arsenal today coming back, and or rather yesterday coming back and, and getting that point. Um, but you're, Manchester United right now surging top of the form table. You could certainly see them overcoming uh, that four-point gap with Leicester. Uh, I, I would say if I was a betting man, I I might put Man United finishing in fourth, go Liverpool, City, Chelsea, United. Um, and then I think that, you know, despite the, the dip in form, Leicester has seven points right now uh, above Wolves, who are in sixth. So I think the Leicester will be able to finish in fifth and you know, potentially get that final spot that, that Manchester City might be giving up, uh, again, if that ban is upheld. Uh, do you know who Leicester have last game of the season, Zach? City. Home to Manchester United. Home to... Oh, that's going to be a brilliant match, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And they've got... I think they've got Spurs in that last four games as well, Leicester. So United have, other than Leicester, a fairly 
simple run-in, I would say, just by Premier League standards. So it's going to be really interesting to see how we stand going into that final game. And obviously we're, we're not 100% yet that fifth is going to guarantee Champions League football. So I think it'll be really, really interesting to see how we end up going into that final game. Absolutely. And I think that another interesting point that you touched on is those teams six through 10th, Wolves, Sheffield United, Arsenal, Burnley, Spurs. Um, none of those teams have been terribly consistent since the restart. We we thought Wolves were going to be uh, running and, and flying above everybody else, and, and now they've lost a couple of matches uh, in a row. They lost today against Burnley in a, in a bit of a surprise. Um, Sheffield United we saw against Newcastle, a team that has dipped in form uh, but have kind of gotten it back together. Excuse me, Sheffield United was the one who built, beat Wolves today. Right. That was not Burnley. Um, and then Arsenal, uh, you know, starting out against uh, City, getting destroyed, and we were asking if, if Mikel Arteta was going to be on the chopping block already, now finding a bit of form. And then Burnley hanging around and, and Spurs, you never really know what to expect on a day-to-day basis. They got beat soundly by Sheffield United on the weekend. So it's really, really up for grabs for what would essentially be a, a Europa League spot at the end of the season. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and predict that Arsenal will sneak a Europa League spot back where they belong in the Europa League for another season. Okay, I like that. Yeah, I think that they... You know they're they're finding a bit more form. Um, they're they're limiting the exposure that David Luiz has, and that's kind of the key to everything for for Arsenal, isn't it? They get a yellow card in their last game within like five minutes, and like here we go again. Yeah. Well, did you speaking of that? Did you see that the red card that Nketia got uh, in the match against Leicester? That was bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice that, the, what one of the ones where you know it, it seemed as though he was not intending to do that, but intent does not matter nearly as much as the, as the final result and that tackle was a pretty pretty awful one so he'll be missing a handful of matches he's he's young he'll learn from it i think you know players players make mistakes like that when they're younger they rush a blood to the head and all of that i mm-hmm. think i think another player who we've talked about who's a, a an upcoming starlet youngster for arsenal is Bukayo saka awesome yeah ball in for the goal for Aubameyang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he and Asaka also getting his his first goal for Arsenal the day after signing a contract extension. Uh, so 18 year old starlet definitely uh, one to keep your eye on um, in the both in the Arsenal and in the England conversation going forward. Uh, <laughs> another another player, though, who will be be off the pitch for a few uh, matches. And this was an interesting one. I don't know if you saw this, Adam, Eric Dyer running into the stands Uh in their match just a few days ago after apparently, uh, allegedly, uh, somebody in the stands, and again, not a lot of people in the stands right now, yelled something at Eric Dyer, Dyer about his brother. Eric Dyer went into the stands and had to be separated from this individual and will now be banned for uh, four matches, so all but one of the this. matches. How did I miss this? Oh. Oh yeah, it was it was pretty well. It was some malice at the palace type stuff, but a lot more um, settled of a result. Uh, now that being said, I, I was talking to my my father and brother today, who, as I've mentioned on the pod, are Spurs fans, and they both said it's a, a big advantage to Spurs now that Eric Dyer will be out because that means that there's not a danger. Uh, for Eric Dyer to be playing, which almost would be worse for Tottenham based on how he's performed this season. So a, uh, a bit of lack of confidence there. But yeah, Spurs are an interesting team to follow right now, especially with, again, another fight that almost broke out between Son and Yoris of all people, which was wild. Everybody on that team 
maybe the last two players you'd ever expect to try to scrap with one another. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great point. <laughs> I'm not the biggest Eric Dyer fan myself, so I tend to agree with your family there. <laughs> he's, aw- he's awful. Yeah. I think he is. Yeah, he is. He he had one flash of quality in the World Cup for England, and everybody went nuts. And yeah, I think he's a bang average player. But yeah, the Spurs, next, the next <laughs> Kieran, Kieran Trippier, perhaps. Uh, yeah, don't insult Kieran Trippier like that again, please. <laughs> um, but yeah, Spurs, Spurs, you never really know what's happening. Jose Mourinho is the manager there, so like, who the who the hell knows at the moment? <laughs> good points, good points. One last shout before we move on from that kind of three through ten group, if you will, is Jamie Vardy hit his hundredth um, Premier League goal for Leicester. Um, quite phenomenal when you think about his story, where he's come from, lower leagues, you know, working part time jobs, and then being snapped up by by Leicester. Um, several years ago and now hitting 100 Premier League goals just want to touch on that I think it's a a marvelous achievement for him yeah certainly joining a a select and honored group to to be a player who has done that uh, Vardy scoring his 100th and 101st goal uh, earlier in the week so uh, credit to him his form has dipped a bit since the restart I heard one thing saying that Perhaps Jamie Vardy's form hasn't been what it was early in the season because he, as a player, thrives of being able to, uh, you know, do some banter with the the away fans and shithousery is his middle name. And without that, he doesn't have the the fuel to the fire, which I thought was a pretty crazy but you know somewhat plausible point of knowing his personality. I don't know that I agree with that per se. I feel like Vardy's form has been dipping since he had that injury just before the new year. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think he's been quite the prolific player in terms of his fitness since he's come come back from that injury, and I don't think that necessarily um, he's been prolific since he's returned from the COVID break either. But I think that you know you can see those glimpses of him getting into the the right areas. His most recent goal, I think, you know, poaching in that area where he loves to be, right on the edge of the six yard box, waiting for scraps coming in, and and that goal that kind of came in again in the Arsenal game. So a wonderful finish from him, classic Jamie Vardy finish into the bottom corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. You can never really count out Jamie Vardy because he does have that killer instinct that that makes a you know a, a legendary number nine. And I think that you know, hitting that 100 goal mark, you, you'd certainly say he is a legendary for his achievements at Leicester over the last uh, few years. So best, um, best top half nine, of the best number nine for Leicester since Gary Lineker. Yes. Yeah, I don't, so. I don't, I don't know who did did Ajoa wear the number one nine at one point? Maybe, maybe he did, but yeah, said that Vardy is one of the best number nines in the Premier League over the last decade. So, yep. um, yeah, that there you go. Uh, but from from the top of the table, which is a bit tight to the bottom five, which is starting to kind of have those gaps that you oftentimes see in uh, towards the end of the season, the relegation uh, group of three clubs sort of shaping up. Uh, give us the rundown here, Adam. What what are we looking at at the bottom of the table? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll kind of run it from the bottom up. I think it's safe to say that Norwich City in bottom place, 20th in the Premier League with 34 games played and 21 points. Um, I think I think they're down. Um, they right now are 10 points adrift of safety with four games to go. Maximum return there could be 12, and they're not going to win all four of their games. So let's discount Norwich. Let's talk about the remaining four teams in the bottom five, Bournemouth. 33 games, 27 points. They have the exact same record, 7 wins, 6 draws, and 20 losses on the season as a team above them, Aston Villa, who have scored or have won 
better goal difference. So basically those two teams, 33 points, uh, 33 games, 27 points. And the two teams above them have played 34 games. So they have a game in hand on 16th West Ham and 17th Watford, both sitting on 31 points right now. So Villa and Bournemouth were to win the, their game in games in hand, they'd be one point behind Watford and West Ham respectively. But I'll pivot to you here, Zach. The, the remaining fixtures that we have for Villa and Bournemouth do not make happy reading for fans of those two teams. Yeah, I think that any any Bournemouth uh, cherry supporter would want to turn their eyes and almost you know plug their ears and, and yell so they don't have to hear it. But Bournemouth's last five fixtures, Spurs, I, I won't say home or away just because of kind of the indifference right now, um, considering no, no fans being at the matches. But uh, Bournemouth, Spurs, Leicester, City, Southampton, uh, who have been in fantastic form, as we noted, and then Everton, who are always uh, a team that can pack a punch. A brutal last five fixtures. I think it, it'll take um, something of a, 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 shall I say, a Leicester City 2014-15 season miracle to keep Bournemouth alive. Uh, I think that Villa, you know, also a, a pretty difficult schedule, but there are some opportunities there. For Villa, it's Man United, Palace, who have been slipping a bit, uh, Everton, Arsenal, and West Ham. So that West Ham match, obviously, on the final day, if if uh, the relegation spots are not solidified, that'll be the, the biggest game of the season. Um, and uh, from there, Watford, uh, they, they won today against Norwich, a, a big win for them. They have Newcastle, West Ham, City, and Arsenal. And then West Ham losing today against Burnley, uh, play Norwich, Watford, Man U, and Villa. So uh, I know that was a lot of information there, but I guess too long, didn't read version. Uh, Bournemouth, I don't see them surviving. Uh, uh, Villa, West Ham, Watford. I'd I, I pick Watford to be the one that I, I think will be able to, to skate by, but I don't know, Adam. I, despite their good form recently, I still I still see West Ham. I still see West Ham going down. I, I, I don't wow. know why I say that, but I, I just... I just don't have confidence in that club. I really, really, really don't. And I think that, um, you know, perhaps Norwich gets one last gasp and, and gets a win over West Ham or at least takes wow. points off them. But I, could, I, could, I would love it to come. As a neutral, I would love it to come to the last game of the season with Villa against West Ham to, to see who will be going down. I think that would be thrilling to watch. I think it'll be fascinating because West Ham have three of the remaining four games are what we call relegation six-pointers, right? Norwich, Watford, Villa, Norwich, as we've said, are down already, but, you know, hypothetically, it's their next game. They have to win that game if they want to stay up, so you'd assume that Norwich will be up for that game, and then they have Man United interspersed there. I think West Ham have the easiest set of four fixtures. I think West Ham stay up comfortably, would be my prediction Mm. at this point. Um, Watford, basically, next two games, Newcastle and West Ham, they have to stay up. They have to get points from those games if they want to stay up, I should say. City and Arsenal, last two games can't guarantee any points from those although they did beat the Bulls act and then Villa and Bournemouth I, I think I think that's probably going to be how the bottom three rounds out I think Villa will finish 18th I think Bournemouth are toast um, and it pains me to say that um, Bournemouth are toast one one question that kind of came up I was reading some pundits talking about it earlier on um, this past weekend is there any benefit most likely I would say for either Villa or Bournemouth at this point to any managerial changes. Now, looking at West Ham and Watford, 
Watford have made two managerial changes this season. West Ham have made one managerial change this season, and they seem to be pulling away a little bit now. Villa and Bournemouth have stuck by their managers all season long. Do you think that Dean Smith um, and Eddie Howe are at the helm of both respective clubs come the end of the season? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that it, that is a really great point, though, that Watford and West Ham, you know, had the, had the, had the bravery to switch managers midway through the season. And, you know, obviously nothing, nothing is finalized yet, but currently are not clubs that will be going down. I just think that the way that everything has played out with the three month break and, and now, you know, play having resumed, but in a much, much different nature, I just, I see it being too little too late. I I don't think that, I, I don't think that Bournemouth would fire Eddie Howe in the middle of a season just because of the history of him and the club. Uh, and then Dean Smith, the the manager that brought up Villa last season, I, I, I just think that it would be a very, very big risk to, with, with five matches or four matches remaining, try to switch up the manager and, and, you know, hope and pray that, uh, the manager would be able to come in and, and get that instant reaction. So, uh, should they switch managers now? Maybe, maybe not, but, Will they? I, I don't think that'll happen. Yeah, you make some good points. I think COVID also helps those two managers in terms of job security through the end of the season because I think really getting a new manager in with the current kind of restrictions that we have from a COVID standpoint would just be all the more difficult. Not impossible, but good point. But all, all, good the, point. all the more difficult. And I think that if there were to be a change, my, my guess is that it would probably be Dean Smith and not Eddie Howe. And I, I say that only because of the investment that's been made in Aston Villa um, in the last two transfer windows. They've pumped hundreds of millions, close to 200 million, I think, into the club. And they did not expect to be down here fighting the way they are. So I think Dean Smith, if anybody, needs to be looking over his shoulder a little bit from those bottom five teams. Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a very, very astute point there, Adam. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think... They're they're gonna have to scrap with what they have at this point, and and we'll see we'll see what happens. Um, okay, well, uh, you know, the we we had a bit of a an abridged version of an outline uh, prepared for tonight. So typically we would be jumping right into to ten and ninety from here, but as I mentioned before, uh, a special guest on the pod. So cranking it back to Newcastle, obviously the the focal point of a lot of our discussions is. The, the takeover talk, um, and uh, one person who, uh, through what I would describe as Newcastle Twitter, that has become a, a quite outspoken voice in the Newcastle community over the past few months, is a, a woman who goes by the Twitter handle Red Rose Michelle. So Michelle is a, a, a corporate crime lawyer based in London um, and has gained a lot of traction and attention for her I would I would describe as very honest and and very candid uh, descriptions and opinions on what's gone on um, with all of these multi-layered and nuanced uh, legal um, d- discussions and disputes and investigations that have gone on uh, regarding the takeover of Newcastle United. So without any further ado, I had the chance to to speak with. Uh, Michelle earlier today, and uh, here is a a clip from Michelle and my discussion uh, on Newcastle United, uh, her rise as as a voice in the Newcastle community, and if she thinks uh, we will be in a much better place with new owners next season. So uh, stay locked. 
I would just love you to to start with uh, kind of a, a brief history about you know who you are yourself and uh, your career, and then we can kind of delve into yeah how you've become this this guiding light for for Newcastle fans online. Um, yeah, so uh, I've been involved with the Gallagher Shots group for a while. Um, I'm actually good friends with with Chris. Um, we've had a, a lot of drinking sessions together. Um, had a few drinking sessions with Adam as well, who's behind the camera. Um, and I've been a fan for, for ages. Uh, and I saw that obviously there was the failed takeover last year and there was lots of lawyers kind of jumping in and trying to give opinions on it. Um, and as, as we said just before we were recording, I, I think there are a lot of good commentators out, of the, out there. So I think Ben Jacobs is a good commentator. I think most of what the athletics say makes a lot of sense. Um, I think where um, fans have probably listened a bit more to what I've been saying is just because I've tried to put it into layman's terms. Um, as, a, as a criminal lawyer rather than a corporate lawyer, we tend to deal with lay clients a lot more. So, you know, the average Joe on the street rather than big corporations or other lawyers at corporations. So I think when you, you know, um, learn to do that over time in police stations or court or other stressful scenarios, you can sometimes try and explain it in a way that people understand. Um, you know, even as a criminal lawyer, a lot of the corporate jargon, we sometimes have to break down have been quite receptive to that way of explaining things and I think also because a lot of the other less reliable outlets the press and other journalists have put loads of rubbish out there people have been a bit confused about who to believe so they've got on the one hand the stuff they don't understand and on the other hand they've got um, stuff that they don't believe so I think you know and I'm not you know taking any massive credit for this so I don't think anything that I do is rocket science but I think I've just explained it in a way that some fans feel like it makes more sense to them and I think because I've never said you know this is 100% accurate or that I've got this from some ridiculous source that I'm not telling you about it's just based on common sense and logic and here's the background I think fans kind of associate with that. Mm -hmm. and, and do you feel that like Twitter in kind of the the essence of that bite-sized you know 280 character like shout that you're able to do do you think twitter has provided you that platform to just be very kind of blunt and very specific with what you're saying and not not provide all this fluff that as you just touched upon might be the the things that are kind of confusing uh, to the to the average reader yeah, I think it's it's good. I think people I think people look at a thread and think, God, it's like 16, however long, but actually you read through them very quickly. And I think whilst as a lawyer, you're really tempted to caveat stuff or to put in dramatic language, when you actually have to focus on making them shorter, I think it makes your drafting actually as a lawyer dryly, I think makes it makes it better. And I think for that reason, um, if you just keep it to, and I try to keep the, the tweets on each one on a kind of specific subject, I think that just makes it a lot more readable. But you do then get some someone saying, you know, uh, Susan saying, you know, well, what about this? And you think, well, the, the whole point of our tweets and the way that I try to put things out in the takeover is not to cover every single thing, is to cover what I think is going to come into my inbox, like literally the second after it comes out or everything that I've been tagged in already. Yeah, it, it, well, and so, like, w with with that kind of mentality in mind, um, you know, you, you, you have a hair over 13,500 followers on Twitter at the moment. Uh, can, you, can you tell me kind of how that's been? How, like, when, when was it that you saw this increase in, in people following your content and kind of taking your opinion to, to being this um, 
this, you know, voice for the people, uh, if, if you will. Well, um, that's nice if people think that. Um, I think it just started increasing when I spent quite a lot of time and, and also Reese Rosser, as you know, who comes on my um, Twitter sometimes. We both spent quite a long time unpacking the complex nature of Company's House, um, all the documents that came out at the beginning and how everything had been structured. And that was actually very complicated um, in the way that they had done it. And I think the fact that we were able to explain how everything fitted together um, kind of got people's attention because they were thinking, you know, if if this is if this is all right, then all the pieces do match up and they must be quite credible. Um, so from them, it was kind of like a slow increase. And I think as we did more um, podcasts and tweeted more things as things were updated and people kind of sensed that everything that we said actually did happen or everything that we were saying was caveated with this might not be right or this is why we think it. I think as long as you're not going in there saying this is 100% going to happen and lots of people were saying it'll take over or happen on this day. Um, I think people generally trusted what we said and I think I've been quite careful with with what I've said. Um, you know as a fan it's quite difficult to keep in your excitement about these things but once you know people are listening to what you're saying you have to be more careful about what you tweet and I think then it's just been a kind of a steady rise um, of followers and you know it's weird I don't you know people say well you just go through your head and you're just this that and the other like honestly it doesn't really make any difference to me it's really lovely that people have followed and people are interested but ultimately you know the followers for me are just it's just a, a number it just makes me as I said to you before a bit reluctant to just tweet some absolute rubbish about my dog um, although you know I have have tended to do that so I'm sure that I'll probably lose followers and people will lose interest um, which is you know absolutely fair enough I don't um, you know set myself out to be any kind of you know particular expert I think it's just happened because as fans we're all desperate for the takeover news um, and we're all desperate to try and understand a bit more about how it might be working or why there's such a delay Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, by the way, a great moment for you to make a shameless plug about your dog content on Twitter, which I, I do think that it's always nice to have that soft reprieve from the tensions of the takeover. So um, perhaps your your dog photographs are, are quite, quite, quite well liked by a small but powerful minority of Newcastle fans who need that parody. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've always laughed at people calling themselves uh, Instagram influencers, but um, she was wearing a little bandana the other day and about 40 people asked me where it's from. So I feel like that little shop should just be giving me a shout out for, for that. I mean, I've asked the dog if she wants any royalties, but she's still napping. So. Contract negotiations are, are, are tense and taut with the dog right now. <laughs> right. Oh, man. So uh, I guess kind of like getting into the thick of things and with the takeover, you know, it, it it has seemed like this really interesting period of time where so, you know, with with folks hold up at home and really just kind of on edge uh, in, in a variety of ways in our lives, it, it's almost seemed like the time has passed even slower. And um, as of recently, you know, we've had in the past few weeks, the WTO report getting released. Um, and then concurrently a statement uh, that was made uh, by Majid Al-Kasabi, uh, who is obviously a, a pretty key player on that Saudi Arabian side um, with the PIF. Uh, I, I would love to just get your opinion on kind of current status from what you've read and, and documents that you've deciphered. Um, you know, wh where do you think that 
those negotiations stand at the moment? Or, uh, um, and, and where do you think that the Premier League is, is kind of focusing their attention right now? Um, I think it's I think it's really difficult to say. I think anyone that is pointing specifically to certain things that they think are the reason for the holdup, um, I'm a bit skeptical of. From my perspective, the piracy issue is is clearly the major, if not the only reason for the delay. I don't think we can understand really the specifics of that, but we do know all the things that are in play because, as you say, we've seen the WTO report. Um, you know, the athletic article, which talks very clearly about the issues, um, as you've said, which are the political issues between the countries um, and the fact that obviously Saudi Arabia makes no secret of the fact their human rights record is terrible um, and their legislation and judicial system is, is really terrible. And I think, um, as we've said from the beginning and now seemingly to some it seems a surprise, this is an ongoing process where all the parties will be speaking to each other. So although technically the owners and directors test shouldn't be a negotiation, it seems to me very clearly that the Premier League are in ongoing discussions with the parties to make sure that when and if the test is passed, or at least when they make a decision, that there's as, as small amount of criticism as possible for the Premier League. And I think that the ongoing delays are to do with uh, them asking various questions about how they can get these assur assurances that the piracy issues will be dealt with. Um, obviously, there are other things going on in the background that seem to pop up on the daily. So, um, you know, the girlfriend of uh, Jamal Kazagi was, I think she was on the news again yesterday. Um, obviously, all very sad. Um, you know, I, I don't think that 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 situation will factor in um, and there was also obviously the sanctions updated list yesterday which contained a number of individuals that are said to be involved in in his murder again there's there's nothing directly to link that to piff but i think with everything going on in the background it's very important that piff and those that are going to be tested under the owners and directors test are not in any way linked to any wrongdoing, which arises, I think, primarily from allegations of the piracy, but also to a lesser extent for the fact the Premier League won't want to be criticised with um, Jamal and, and the other issues that are raised by various parties. So for me, that's the reason for the ongoing delay. It's, it's obviously very complicated. Um, I think there's been interviews with other MPs in the UK saying is there pressure on Masters and he eventually said that there wasn't any pressure. Um, I thought the ironic thing about that interview is that the Scottish MP who was actually speaking to him was probably pressuring him himself, um, which is a bit ironic. But um, I, I think all of those are background issues which have complicated it. I think the fact that we're all desperate for it to happen is making it worse. I think, you know, if we were in a position where, you know, the timing of the transfer window wasn't such an issue, or if we were in a position where we didn't absolutely hate Mike Ashley, I feel like, you know, it, it would be less difficult. It's, you know, like they say, I don't know, I think it's a very English phrase, but they say, you know, watch kettle never boils. So I think that's making it worse. And for me, I just think, you know, lots of Twitter people have said to me, you know, it's starting to really affect how I feel, starting to affect my mental health. And I just think from that perspective, I understand. I think that's why people do follow me because, you know, I say to them, you know, don't think I'm, you know, some unbiased press outlet that doesn't care about this. Obviously it affects you, but sometimes when something is just so out of your control, 
and there's no way of ever knowing the specifics. I think you just have to turn off from the articles. And as I said to you before, which is where we were speaking, you know, I've, you know, not actually kept up to date on everything that's been happening because I just feel like now, even if a tiny little thing happens, you know, everyone on Twitter is so desperate for news, it just blows up into something. And if you actually look at it and stop reading articles and people that are paid for, you know, clickbait, look at the article, you know that that isn't logically going to affect it. So I think, I think it is, it is a delay. I think it will mean the owners and directors test has to be changed. I think it is becoming a bit embarrassing for the Premier League um, that, you know, something has come out of left wing, which has been discomplicated, but they simply haven't been able to, to control or deal with properly. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's just a waiting game. And I think lots of people continuing to make money out of comment, commenting on, you know, our fans' misery um, can, it is going to affect you. So I think, you know, obviously listen to this recording, and you know, obviously follow you guys on Twitter. But then, you know, I think you have to turn off at some point and say, you know, what will be will be. Absolutely. It, it seems as though that there are kind of, in a way, two camps that, that Newcastle fans can fall into right now. There's the camp of let's like get it over with as quickly as possible, you know, approve the sale, approve the sale. And then there's maybe a smaller camp that, that kind of more says, well, this this purchase would really be a seismic shift in, in kind of the trajectory of both the club and the Premier League as a whole. And every every stone truly does need to be unturned in order to, to make sure that there aren't these issues that are being somewhat glossed over. Do, do you, you know, despite the temptation to just yell from the rooftops, you know, get the takeover over with, do you feel as though the the wait in the in the long period is somewhat warranted in order to ensure that you know, these aren't there aren't these underlying issues that might that might pop up after a sale has been completed. I think it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I think some of this now is us covering by the Premier League. Some of this is them making sure that whatever they decide, given how much this is spotlight and how much controversy there is and how much the issues are ones that have to be handled carefully you know there's obviously political issues you know obviously whatever happened to um Jamal Khashoggi like that obviously is very sad and it's it's something that needs to be investigated the you know Saudis need to do better with human rights but that balanced against the fact that the government you know still wants to have good relations with them I think the Premier League have just been caught in the middle and I think they have to be sure that they've done the right things um, and said the right things and checked everything off the problem ultimately is that the test is a legal one it's not a moral one and if they had followed the black letter of the law in my opinion they should have already passed the owners and directors by now hmm. there there is that that blurred line right of of these issues that perhaps took place in Saudi Arabia and somehow implicated certain members of the sale and and then direct connection to the sale of Newcastle, which almost is getting shrunk to just a very minor part of this entire ordeal. Um, yeah, so, so you know, we, we're coming up at the end of the season and the opening of the transfer window. And I know that that's a big focus of a lot of folks is if we're in limbo during the transfer window, you know, we all know Mike Ashley. I, I personally wouldn't think he's going to spend a penny for a club that he might not own in a, uh, 
a period of time. So are you expecting kind of new news to come out with the, the weeks coming in, in July? Uh, or, it, or do you think that there's not really any reason right now to, to expect any breakthrough anytime soon? I think it's really difficult to put a time frame on it. I think obviously it's the first thing that fans want and it's very difficult because then if you put a time frame on it and that passes, then people get angry or people get upset or lose faith or whatever. I think there's some suggestion that Mike Ashley is having ongoing discussions with Amanda Staveley about things like Longstaff's contract and what will be happening, but it's very difficult to see, and I'm sure was not envisioned by them given the timing of it, that this would still be going on with the transfer window in mind. And again, it would really depend on negotiations with the with PIF as to how that, that would be managed if that's still in limbo, because on the alternate you know how are they going to want to know what players they want to buy if they don't know if they're going to own the club um so i you know i really think that there ought to be some news you know fairly shortly i know that richard masters said that he was hoping it would conclude shortly um i think if it i think that premier league are probably in a position where they'll have to make some sort of comment um on the outcome of the test normally i think that they would just let the relevant parties now and those would make an announcement when funds were transferred but the longer this goes on I think the more the Premier League needs to actually um, you know make some sort of public statement whilst appreciating that the process itself is confidential um, I think I really would like to think that, that this will be resolved by the time the transfer window is open but it's also just a bit like you know no one's hugely surprised because it's Newcastle it's just it could only happen to us couldn't it yeah, absolutely. You know, we we as the the poster child for a wayward club in the Premier League, um, and especially in in recent weeks, it's almost seemed laughable with all the the Liverpool uh, focus of you know thirty years of pain are over, and Newcastle fans on the sideline being like, try try sixty, seventy years of pain, and then we can have a conversation. So I agree, we're we're certainly in the arena once again. Yeah, and I think people have like really enjoyed the fact that we've been a bit underdog and had some sort of comedic team for the last however long. And I think that uh, I think people are right to say, you know, and I've tried not to become embroiled in you know the gossip and the the anger and the bitterness. But I think people are right to say if this had been a different club, um, this level of commentary from other people just wouldn't have happened. Um, I didn't watch the interview yesterday um, with with Jamal Kasavi's girlfriend, but. Um, lots of people saying it was just a bit it was just a bit ridiculous um, in the sense that she's now being used as some sort of political um, pawn between between all the parties and and it does feel a bit odd I mean you know I can't imagine you know how difficult her personal circumstances are but it does seem as a lawyer a bit of an odd move to get a silk a, a QC to start writing letters on your behalf to the Premier League I would have thought if she's in the, in the position where she wants to do interviews and talk about how it's affected her personally, um, you know, I would have thought there are better ways to go about it than to get, you know, a legal representative to write a legal letter to the Premier League about, about those personal issues. Um, but it's almost just become a bit ridiculous in terms of every day there's, there's something else crops up. And I think, I think the Premier League have to take a look at these tests and work out what they actually want to include. And, and, probably to put a timeline on and a time frame on how they will consider issues because you know if something new comes out the woodwork every day no wonder fans are saying when when are you going to actually make a decision and what evidence is it going to be based on you know there should be a time frame say you know 28 days to raise any objections to this 
you know, from then on in, unless them, you know, there's some ongoing discussions, no further evidence should be considered. Mm. It, w- it would be an interesting fallout from this if the Premier League does kind of restructure the the process for for takeovers and owners and directors tests and and these checks and balances in place. So you know per- perhaps if anything that can be kind of a positive development that comes from this entire saga is uh, a a more streamlined process um, and one that can can be better used for potentially other clubs in the, in the future. Hopefully Newcastle is not one of those clubs that needs to go through another takeover anytime soon. Yeah, it's difficult though, because, you know, as a lawyer, um, you know, you have to keep your morality because basically, especially in crime, basically all you've got, you know, you need to know where the line is with what you're comfortable doing and what you're not. Um, and you're kind of trusted as a lawyer to make those decisions on behalf of people accused or convicted of very serious offences. So, it's difficult to see how the Premier League are going to introduce a moral test. Um, for example, Mike Ashley, um, you know, has been in many um, court hearings. He's been in the employment tribunal in relation to, um, you know, previous players, Jonas Gutierrez. Um, and he's been in, I, I think he's been in the employment tribunal in relation to his own employees at Sports Direct as well, in terms of working conditions. Um, so, you know, it's difficult to say if you're going to introduce a moral test will that include things like that and and where will the line be drawn because you know ultimately you've still got the government pressure the government wants to have a good relationship with saudi arabia um you know where where will they draw the line as to what is morally acceptable for the premier league for a football club you know in terms of you know it's morality in football it's you know, it's, it's not a straightforward issue anyway um, you know, some people like to, to make various decisions that others wouldn't agree with. Where do you draw the line there in, in terms of what will be approved and what won't? It's just very difficult to see how it works. You know, you might not like who's taking over the club. Um, you might not agree with their politics. Um, you certainly probably don't agree with their, um, you know, their history. But, you know, how, and how, do, how does Saudi Arabia move forward in that sense? And how do we ever get new people and new investment into our clubs from overseas if we're going to start introducing these kind of tests? I just can't see it. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly multi-layered, uh, I guess, request to, to have them reshape, you know, the, the process to, to approve a sale. But, um, but yeah, a very interesting time to be living through as a Newcastle supporter. Uh, really, really delighted that you made a mention of Jonas Gutierrez. This might be the first time that somebody other than myself, uh, a self-proclaimed Jonas Gutierrez obsessi, has mentioned him during the pod. So, so thank you for, for uh, giving a shout out to my favorite player. Oh, that's fine. I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to avoid saying names incorrectly. So I've looked up... Um, Jamal, and I'm still not sure how you say his surname, Kazogi, Kazagi. Um, so I'll just apologise if I've pronounced that wrong, because that Susan will be jumping in my inbox to tell me. But um, I love Jonas Gutierrez, and I think he embodies lots of things um, about the club, and also lots of things that people don't like about the way that Mike Ashley runs it. Um, and I think that's another reason why people feel a bit bitter about all of this, that there are lots of clubs in the Premier League, lots of owners who seem to have fallen foul of the morality test. Um, and he he seems like he could be one of them. So there's another thing to add to to the list of complaints, I suppose. Yeah, certainly. Um, so yeah, Michelle, wanted to to thank you for for taking the time to chat with me today, and and just as kind of a, a 
closing question, uh, dialing back the clock a little bit. Um, uh, we we pretty much asked this with all of our uh, our chats um, with folks outside of coming home Newcastle to, to end out a uh, conversation. So um, I have to ask you, if you could go back in time to watch any Newcastle United match as a fan in the stadium, whether it be home and away or away, which match would you pick and why? Um, I would probably pick the, the match where we, we beat Sunderland, um, just because I've never actually been to see a match where we've played against Sunderland. And I feel like, um, I feel like I definitely probably won it at St. James's Park, although generally I'm a fan of the away days, mainly because I'm based in London for obvious reasons. But um, I feel like it, it really brought out, I mean, I, I took my mum to see one, uh, one of the, the last games against the Mackhams at the pub and she was, she was in an absolute rage. She, she <laughs> Mitrovic scored and she was jumping around the pub um, right in the faces of all the lads wearing sandal on the top. So I was like, I'm glad that she's in her 50s because um, this could end really badly. Um, but I feel like just being in the home crowd for that would have been, um, you know, a really, really great experience. And um, you know, I know there's a lot of rivalry with Sunderland, but I actually quite miss that, you know, there's there's no more of those derby days. So I, I think I think that that would be it. But there are obviously hundreds to choose from. All right. Thank you so much, Michelle, uh, for speaking with me today. Really appreciate it and look forward to, to keeping in contact with you and uh, sharing our opinions on all the latest Newcastle United news. Uh, from there, we'll we'll go back to our uh, you know our our traditions here, Adam, and go into ten and ninety. Do you want to go first, or do you want to go second in today's episode? Um, I went first last week, so or last part, I should say. Let, I'll go second this time. Why don't, why don't you kick it off, Zach? Second, it is for you. So I kind of uh, took an interesting, well, at least what I would think is an interesting format uh, for the 10 in 90 uh, today. Went with a bit of a pattern for my first few questions and then uh, went to some some more specific trivia. So I'll start with my hypotheticals as I always do, Adam. Um, Question number one for you. Uh, So Norwich has scored two goals in their six matches since the restart. Mm -hmm. And their last four matches um, are against West Ham, Chelsea, Burnley, and Manchester City. So from those four remaining matches, uh, looking at the lack of prowess that Norwich has up front, how many goals do you think they're going to be able to score? I'll give them another two. You'll give them another two? Who do they score against? I think they'll score against West Ham. West Ham are not known as a defensively solid team. Let's go ahead and say they score two against West Ham. <laughs> now that I think about it, two, a two a two a two nil win against West Ham and everything gets turned on its head. <laughs> I, I, I never said that. It's a three two loss, but they score two. <laughs> uh, now it's a three two win. Uh, they blow a two nil lead, and then Declan Rice scores an own goal to lose the game for, for West Ham. Why do I hate Declan I Rice so much? It's because he is not Isaac Hayden, and I don't know if we need to go into any more detail, but I think that that is the exact reason. Well, he also crippled Alan St. Maximin in the last game as well, too. So He, he did. Terrible, several terrible challenges. And just not, not a fan. He seems to be a very full-of-himself person and player. I agree. I agree. Uh, okay, so question number two, um, sticking with a similar format here. Chelsea's final four matches are against Sheffield United, Norwich, Liverpool and Wolves. 
Now, Chelsea's starlet since the restart, uh, without any any shadow of a doubt, has been Christian Pulisic, the American, uh, registering three goals in uh, the, the matches we've seen uh, since Project Restart. Pulisic, currently now on eight goals, seems to have solidified a starting spot in the Chelsea lineup. How many goals do you think he ends with this season? Nine goals, and I win my bet that he doesn't score 10 this season. All right. I was positive you were going to give that answer, so I'm <laughs> glad that you, you followed exactly what I expected. I am, noth- <laughs> um, I am nothing if not predictable, Zach. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, okay. So question number three. Newcastle United's final four matches are against Watford, Spurs, Brighton, and Liverpool. Now, Adam, we currently have 35 goals on the season, just a few more than Jamie Vardy. Uh, Do you think we can crack 40 goals total on the season? Again, our final four matches are against Watford, Spurs, Brighton, and Liverpool. So do you think we crack 40 goals if we're now at 35? And if so, how many do you think we end with? I do not think that we crack that amount. I think that we will struggle against Spurs, and I think that clearly we'll struggle against Liverpool. So that, that leaves the remaining two games... Watford are not an easy team to break down either. And and honestly, I feel like we've picked up some muscle injuries for players. There was no LaSalle's. We looked really poor without LaSalle's. I'll, I'll add that today. As, as much criticism as LaSalle's gets for mistakes sometimes, we are a better side with Jamal LaSalle's in, in the center of defense. So I don't think that we break 40, 38 or 39 for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair point, especially as you mentioned, Watford a bit harder to break down and, and Brighton has found its form and is still, I think they still have that mentality of, you know, fighting relegation, although Brighton is all but safe at this moment. So we'll see 38 goals. That'll, that'll be a, a good way to end a season that we can forget. <laughs> shout out, shout out to my boyfriend of the pod, ex Swans manager, Graham Potter, still impressing for me. Yeah, that's true. You you sneak in a Graham Potter shout out every single episode we do. He's a friend of the pod, Zag. Why would I not? That's true. That's true. One of our original friends of the pod. Um, Graham Potter, thank you so much for listening. All right, two more questions here. Question number four. Uh, Adam, I'll ask you this, a bit of a trivia question. What dubious record will Norwich hold once they are relegated from the Premier League this season? So I know that's kind of vague. Uh, the clue I'll give you there is it directly has to do with the fact that they will be relegated this season. So do you know what dubious record Norwich will hold once they are relegated this season? Hmm. Will they have spent the most time in the bottom three? That I I like that guess, and I it, that could be the case. I actually do not know if if that is true. The the record that I was referring to is Norwich will be the sole holder of the record for the club that has been relegated the most times from the Premier League. <laughs> My dad will hate that. And do you know how many times they they will have been relegated since the inception of the Premier League uh, in 1992? I was about to ask you to clarify that, whether it was like first yep. top division or Premier League. God, is it, is it maybe six or seven times? It's five times. Okay. It's five times in twenty five times in twenty seven seasons. So, um, if if you do your math here, that means that they uh, there were ten seasons in which they were getting promoted, or five seasons in which they're getting promoted to the Premier League. So they've spent nearly half of the the seasons since the inception of the Premier League. 
being promoted or being relegated, which is a, a tough thing to see. It's a roller coaster of emotions there at Carrow Road. Um, I, I would, I would um, just as a, as a final thought on that stat, um, say that Norwich are one of those teams that has always kind of lived on a shoestring budget. So mm-hmm. I think credit where it's due, I think they've actually overachieved to be in the Premier League as much as they have in those 27 years. I like that positivity for a team that has not seen a ton of it this season. And they also are led by uh, Newcastle legend and friend of the pod, Tim Krul. So we, we, you know, we have to give them some sort of shout out there. And, and Daniel Farker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how does he still have a job? That's a great question. <laughs> he's, he's in with Delia Smith. I don't know. I'm not sure. sure uh, he's, he's stayed in her good graces yeah. despite everything investigative reporting incoming okay final question here uh for you adam uh and i i think you might enjoy this one i want to see how you do uh so adam since the inception of the premier league 27 seasons ago there are three players who have won the premier league player of the season twice so three players who have won the award multiple times only three players who are they oh that's a good question zach i like that a lot Hmm. If you want, I can give you clubs. Uh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. I have some ideas already, but go, uh, that'll, that'll help. Okay. Uh, so of the three players, two Manchester United and yep. one Arsenal. Okay. I was going to go with Beckham. Nope. Hmm. That was actually going to be my answer before you even said Manchester United. Yeah. That was my father's first guess as well. So. Uh, Man United. So it's got to be kind of like prime alex ferguson era um skull i'm leaning towards skulls or keen then no wow i don't think we're not more recent more recent than that then then keen yeah absolutely okay hmm. who who are you about to say i was gonna say cristiano ronaldo but i don't think that he did did he Cristiano Ronaldo is one of the answers, okay. and he's actually the only—he's the only of the three answers uh, to win the Premier League Player of the Season twice in a row. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was going to say I don't think he was there that long that he could have won it twice, but there you go. If he won it twice in a row, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, okay, let's go over to the Arsenal one. Thierry Henry. Yes. Okay. And then the remaining Man United one. Give me, give me another clue. Is it? Like kind of rough timeline. Like who was who was manager at the time? Uh, late two thousands. There's there's one clue that I can give you that I think you you might be able to get it immediately. But this was really interesting to me. I I would have never guessed this player. Um, you, you got me. Go ahead, give me a clue. Uh, defender. Defender. <laughs> just every part of me wants to stay phil jones just to be funny but i'll i'll, I'll refrain um i don't know patrice evra nemanja vidic no yes wow that's a great mm-hmm. great question no i would i would never have gone there yeah, neither neither would have I, neither would i have however when you when you think back on it vidic was Vidic was unbreakable uh, during his his prime at Man United. So yeah, um, yeah, cool little fact there. Great, great questions. I like it. I like it a lot. 
All right, cool. So yeah, I'll turn it over to you. What are your what are your five and a half questions for ten and ninety? <laughs> well, I went with a bit of a theme. There are some hypotheticals and there's some statistical stuff in there, but I'm so glad that you asked me one of the questions that you did because I wanted to give you a ten and ninety lesson on you're a huge fanboy of him, your boy, Christian Pulisic. Oh, let's go. <laughs> All right. Are you, are you... After after my good after my weirdly good performance last episode covering Villa, I I need to I need to live up to that. All right, cool. We'll start we'll start with an easy one for you. Um in what year was Pulisic born? Um let me do math really quickly. Uh 1998 is the correct answer. Currently 21 turns 22 in September. Good start. All right. Um this one is a hypothetical for you. I'd like to know your opinion on this. Pulisic has um, 14 international goals, and he's only 21 years of age for the United States currently. The record for the United States is 57 international goals, and that's actually um, jointly held by Clint Dempsey and Landon Donovan. Do you think that Pulisic will break that record? And if so, how many goals will he score in his international career? It's interesting. I I think I have a distant memory. I think that I've asked you this exact question once upon a time in 10 and 90. It was that or I I just shouted out that fact because I remember those figures very precisely. Um, Yes, I do think he will break the record. He's about one fourth of the way there. 21 years of age. He is in currently the form of his career. Um, so I, I think he'll comfortably break that record. How many will he end with? I could see I could see Christian Pulisic, you know, obviously injuries aside, we can never predict that, but I could see Pulisic going into triple digits. Yeah, I mean, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised. He's got a great career ahead of him. He's got to steer clear of injuries. He's had a couple already this season. I think that's the key. But if he can stay fit, I think that it's a good shout. Yeah, yeah, good question. Cool. Question number three. All right, this is not a hypothetical. This is a factual question. Is his last name pronounced Pulisic or Pulisic? Pulisic. Is the incorrect answer. Christian has gone on record as saying that either one is acceptable and would not commit either way. Oh my god. Yeah, that's an unfair... That's an unfair (laughs) question. That's not... So you, you, you probably got a... You probably got it right, but also got it wrong. That's fair. Half point. There you go. All right. Question number four. This is a good one. The last name, Pulisic, is a common last name in which country where Christian has his own roots? Croatia. It is Croatia. Do you know why he has roots in Croatia? Do you know what side of the family there? Do I know what side of the family? Um, Which family member might be tied back to Croatia? No, I I am not sure. Is it his mother? Pulisic's maternal maternal grandfather was born in Croatia on the island of Olib. Ah, okay. So it is his mother's side, yes, maternal. Okay. Is. Yep. There, there it is. Incre- incredible question there. Dug through the annals of <laughs> facts to get you that one. Uh, all right. Of Olib history. <laughs> Last question around Mr. Pulisic. All right. I'll ask you simply, Zach. Five words. Christian Pulisic or Freddie Adu? <laughs> oh no you can't do me like that you can't you can't friend try to turn me pod, against friend of the, the pod what do you do or your boy christian pulisic uh, you cannot turn me against the true the prodigal friend of the pod 
man. Um, whew, I would say that I, you know, we we haven't seen where Pulisic's career is gonna go. I have to give it to Freddie Adu. That's the correct answer. Good job, my friend. I knew yeah. I knew I'd get you. <laughs> that was that was good. I like that. All right, la- last question. As always, pronounce these Welsh words for me, Zach. I got two again for you this week. Um, it's T Y is the first word. Okay. And then the second word is C O F F I T Y C O F F I. Tirakuf. <laughs> One more time. Tirakuf. It's tea coffee. Tea. Oh wow. Okay. I really, <laughs> really overthought that one. <laughs> and and tea coffee means what, Zach? Oh, ugh, I don't. I don't like that. Those are phonetically English words. Um, tea coffee means good coffee. This is this is mostly why. I asked you this question because I thought for sure you'd be like tea or coffee. Um, the word tea in Welsh actually means house. So it's a, okay. it's a coffee house. The coffee house? Or a coffee shop. What is a, uh, oh, a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. I was like, what is a coffee house? Yeah, um, it literally means coffee house. Okay. So like a Starbucks or probably something more. I don't really have a lot of Starbucks in Wales, to be honest. That, yeah, I would be shocked if they did. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, there you okay. Go. That was that was that was a fun one. So we could say that I did not miss a question this week on ten and ninety. Depends depends on your perspective, I guess. Um, I would say that you missed a couple, um, but I, you redeemed yourself no matter how poorly you did with the Freddie Adu answer. So good job, Zach. Okay, good. You have to stick loyal to the original friends of the pod. That's one thing I know. That's right. I know for certain in my in my years in my years doing the False Nines podcast. Exactly. Um, exactly. What's up, Freddie? If you're listening, good good to talk to you as always, man. Yeah, I'm absolutely going to edit that audio in. It's been too long since we've started our podcast with the Freddie Adu clip, so (laughs) that one will be in for this episode. Cool. I like it. Well, this has been fun, man. All righty. Yeah, another great episode in the books. Um, Yeah, I guess next time we talk, it'll probably be quite close to the end of the Premier League season, so we'll have to to come up with some wrap-up topics. Yep, exactly. Um, Exciting times ahead, my friend, and until next time, Footy! Footy!